Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Serial startup founder and lifestyle entrepreneur Loic Lemur has made a career out of discovering amazing people and helping them share their ideas with the world, from more than a decade running Le Web, a tech conference in Paris, to launching a new company called Leaders this year. He's let his own personal passions and frustrations guide him from one business to the next, and according to him, that may be why he's been so successful. Loic will share with us his thoughts on why most people never manage to get their ideas out of their heads and into the real world, what he learned from the mistakes he made launching one startup that failed, and how his daily mindfulness practice helps him filter reality, recover from upsetting experiences, and maintain his trademark positive attitude. So today I am talking to multi-company founder Loic Lemur. And Loic, did I pronounce that correctly? You did, Loic. You pronounced it well. Thank you. Hi, David. It's good to have you here. I wanted to ask you if you could give people a brief introduction. You've done so many things. How do you introduce yourself these days? Well, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm French, as you can hear. I'm based in San Francisco and started six startups investing in more than 30 others. What I'm doing today, I'm, well, maybe I should start. What I'm the best known for probably is a conference called The Web, which I run for 12 years in a row, one of the largest tech conferences in, in Europe with 4,000 people in 85 countries. And now I'm in San Francisco building Leaders, which is a platform for speakers and events for basically enabling more speakers on the conference circuit because I just needed it for the web. It feels like it's something that followed very logically on all the work that you did with the web. I'm, I'm curious where the idea came from. My own frustration, I've curated the program of the web and a number of our events for more than 10 years. I think the best way to start a business is to start from your own frustration or your own need. And my own need here as a conference organizer is each time I would look for speakers, I would use a Google Doc, put their names on it, ask people who should be speaking about, you know, I don't know, drugs, for example. And uh, I would put those names down with my team and talk about it, then put it on Twitter and, and all of those different sources would come in. Then we would invite them and use Google Doc to just follow up what's happening and then trash everything after the event and start all over again next year. And there is no history of what we do. You'd be shocked, like most conferences do that, even TED just uses Google Docs. And so I, I feel there is a need for a a Netflix of speakers, a catalog of all the speakers in the world, sorted by theme, by what they talk about, where they talked about, and videos they have, and that's on the event side, and searchable, of course. So I'm building this, and then on the other side, that's also a problem I have. I'm myself a speaker at many events, almost like once a week I talk somewhere. As a speaker, I would say 99% of the speakers are not exposed to major events just because major events generally find the speakers through agents and agents always pick the same speakers because that's where they make money. So the, the best paid speakers are kind of always coming back 
to major events, fair paid, and it's a shame. So it's pretty much like Uber enabled you and me to drive if you want to make some revenue instead of a car driver or a limo. I'm going to try to enable the 99% of our speakers who are not represented by agents and uh, give them a stage. And we already started doing this. We're working with about 20 conferences and it's very successful. I have not launched yet. I've launched one product actually that I can talk to you about, which is a call for speakers. It's been doing really, really well. I'm very excited about it, but it's, it's really early times. I started working on this nine months ago. And didn't you also have a conference back in May about this? Yeah, so it's called Leaders. LEAD.RS. RS is Republic of Serbia. And uh, the reason <laughs> why I have this is that leaders.com is just too expensive. A guy doesn't want to sell it to me. So, you know, whatever. I'm finding solutions as all entrepreneurs should and going for a fast solution. So here is my domain name, leaders. Yeah, we, we are basically reproducing the problem and trying to adapt to the issue. We're trying to solve a conference organizer problem and how he finds good speakers and content by running our own events. We've been doing one event a month, one in Paris, three in San Francisco already, by theme, by vertical, if you want, on all the hot tech topics. So the next one is about chatbots. The previous one was about virtual reality, and we did it in a very, very special way. We put the audience at the center by saying, okay, here's a call for speakers. So basically, we built the software that I wanted that I was already doing this, but manually. So here's how I do it. Who would be the best speakers about chatbots? I don't know. I know a few of them. So I would tweet it and post it on Facebook and send it to a newsletter. And we say, okay, tell us who are the best speakers. And people would reply, and then I would create a list of who nominated whom. And we built this. So it's at actually bots.leaders, B-O-T-S.L-E-A-D-E.R-S. And you can there find our call for speakers where you log in with Facebook, say, and you type a name, and here is the best speaker on bots. And we got, for just a small event, 1,500 people signed up, nominated 160 speakers. Some of the speakers got 10 nominations. So it's basically the audience decides who should speak. And I was blown away by one, how much engagement we got, and two, uh, the speakers we got. We uh, discovered a few people that were totally unknown, put them on stage, did a video with them, pretty much like you're doing a podcast today, featured them. So one of them is, her name is Lauren Kunzi. She was doing bots. She was 15. She's amazing. I had never heard of her. We featured her. She got a lot of LinkedIn requests and speaking requests. And that's what we do. We basically discover new people, put them on stage, and we're building the software to run all that. I love this. So you're essentially crowdsourcing the research on who these people are and then putting it out there so that people have access, so conference organizers have access to these people they might otherwise never have been able to find out about. Exactly. And we are testing it on our own themes, which is tech right now, because that's what I do. I'm in Silicon Valley. And so we did virtual reality and bots. The next one will probably be about self-driving, autonomous driving. The idea is this product I shown to a lot of event organizers. I have 20 lined up who want to use it for their own conference. So I'll give you an example. My friend Soren at, uh, who organizes Wisdom 2.0, which is, if you don't know it, the best event for meditation and mindfulness. It has 3,000 people and he wants to use it to call for the best speakers on meditation and mindfulness. That's one of them. And he will send it to like 50,000 people and hear what his audience wants. So we're building that product now, not only for us, but for others. Uh, there is like three TEDx organizers who want it. There is, I mean, I could go on and on. So very, very fascinating. As you can see, I, I'm very animated. It wakes me up at night. 
So from a very simple idea, which was basically, shit, I need to fix this. and I don't want to use Google Docs anymore. Into a simple product for myself, for my team, to now major conferences who want to use it. And I think if, if it works as I expect, in six months, we'll have 10,000 speakers in this thing. And of course, a large audience of people recommending those speakers as well. I think that's part of what's going to draw people to this platform. That's the idea. I'm actually even going to use it a little more than just for events. Like I do, I don't want to call it a show, frankly, because I'm having fun with it, but I do a Facebook Live every day, whether it's by myself or with a guest on a topic. And I will also crowdsource who should be on the show <laughs> using my tool. And so, so having a lot of fun with it, it's kind of a quest if you want. I've, I've been, I'm 44, I started a few businesses. So it's really not about being successful or big here. It's really about doing something I love. And what I love and I've been doing for the last 15 years is discovering amazing people. That's what I'm trying to do. And honestly, I, I don't care how big it is because I know it's going to work and it doesn't matter. I actually wrote a newsletter and I'm also having a lot of fun writing a weekly newsletter that uh, people can find at leaders, leade.r is very simple for now. And that newsletter I write every week and it's about how I build a startup and what I learned. Tell you a story. I was in an investor meeting. We all need money, right? To fuel what we do. Uh, one of the investors interrupts me after 10 minutes and says, potential investor, and he says, Wait a second, this is small. I'm like, what do you mean it's small? It's like, yeah, speaking, like how big is that market? I'm like, yeah, I don't know, a billion or two, you know what, I don't even know. Oh, it's like, okay, so it's like probably 10, 20% of that. So you're talking about $200 million. This is just so small. This is never going to be a billion dollar company. And I look at him and say, well, who told you it would be? I have no <laughs> intention of building a billion dollar company. And by the way, Mark Zuckerberg, I didn't have an intention to build a billion dollar company either, and nor did Uber. <laughs> at the beginning, they had no idea. So basically, screw you. <laughs> and I wrote my newsletter. Topic is, I am not building a billion dollar company. I like that. One of the things that I love about the way that you seem to approach your work is that you, you let your passion and the things that you love drive what, you're, what you focus on. You seem to look at what it is that you're interested in, what your own personal frustrations, what your own personal issues are, and addressing those. And you let that drive where you're going. Yes, I I think it's a good way to um, progress in life because when you fix your own issues, well, you solve them and you can move to the next issue. It takes a lot of courage, I think, to start off in a path like that. When you were starting off, is this something that drove you from the beginning or is this something that's evolved over time? I always thought that, and I, I, I give a few talks on entrepreneurship in general too, and pretty simple, it's, I'll answer your question, but I think most people never start a business just because they never start doing something. They think about what they should be doing and what the market size is and what do people think about it. And, and uh, they end up not starting anything. Well, when you start something, you create opportunities because you see how people react to it. For example, that call for speakers, I had no idea. I had to build it first and then see what it is. And building this is simple. You know, we, we did it with two engineers. It's not, and we could have done it with half an engineer. It would not have been this, what it is today. But anyway, you, you get my point. You start doing things, you create opportunities, you will meet friends who want to help you, you will... You will find people who are interested in it. And so to answer your question, yes, that has always been my approach. Actually, my very, very first business, which makes me sound old, but it is the case, in 96, was an internship. I was doing an internship in a car manufacturer. 
And then I saw, you know, the need of selling cars online very early in 96. And I told them you should build the first website in France for selling cars online. And they said, well, how, how about we hire you? You join us and we will do that together. And you are, here's a job offer for you. I said, well, thanks. But instead of a job offer, how about you become my customer? And you are my first customer. And I built my first business on the first customer. That was Peugeot. It's a French car manufacturer. That's why I don't, you know, most people won't know about it. But it's very big in France. To answer your question, yes, since the very beginning, I was like, you know, trying to buy a car myself. So I, I got that. And I think it's a very good way to think. And it doesn't have to be a big problem. Actually, most problems start very, very small. I think you've basically stated the thesis of this podcast, actually, and what you were saying, because it seems to be about getting an idea and actually taking action, getting it out there into the world, getting feedback on it, getting people involved and seeing how things are moving. One of the things I'm intrigued by you started off, you were being offered a job from an internship, and you decided instead to go on a more entrepreneurial path right from the start and launch your own company and ask, ask them to be customers. I'm curious how you came to that. So that came from my family background. My parents were entrepreneurs. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. And so I always grew up with the idea that I would always rather work for myself than work for someone else. And there's nothing wrong with working for someone else. But for me, it's all about freedom. The freedom can be much more work by the way than being an employee because when you're an entrepreneur, you have all kinds of problems happening to you. But it doesn't matter. I think I would be happier having a restaurant. <laughs> I'm a terrible cook, so that's a terrible idea. But I would have to find a cook. I, I don't code at all. I'm not a tech guy. And, and so the first person I always need is an engineer. To go with me. So say if everything went wrong, I would prefer launching a small, you know, French restaurant somewhere and be happy being my own boss than anything else. Or another example, I am a pilot. I love flying. So I could probably be a freelance pilot. And that would be also being an entrepreneur somehow because it's my own business. I, I don't like to depend on other people. And then I screw up all the time. It's okay. It doesn't matter. I'm curious what kind of a team you've put together behind you to help support the ventures that you put together. Well, I have only one venture right now. So each time it's a different team. But the team here is the first person, as I said, my co-founder is an extremely good tech person. His name is Jean-Jacques Bory, and we worked together 20 years ago. So, And here's why he's absolutely fantastic. He's, uh, he's a self-made engineer. So he started with not knowing at all how to code. And he contacted me at, during my first like ever business, and he sent me a blank CV. Blank. There is nothing in it. And that CV, and he said, that letter said, look, I, I know nothing, <laughs> but I am reading a book every week. Anyway, no one knows anything about coding for the internet, which was true, 96. And I will learn very fast. And I hired him and he learned very fast. And now he has actually a ton of diplomas because he always wanted to catch up. He's amazing. So, so that, that was my first hire. And then he brought another engineer on board. And now we have four engineers. One backend, which is him, and one web frontend, and one iPhone, one Android, because we want native apps. But those just came on board now, so this is, this is all new. And then the second person I looked for was a content person, because we're doing content, finding great speakers. And so I turned to Karen, Ken Williams, who has been helping me with the web for 10 years plus, building the great content we had on stage, and that's why the conference works and worked. And she joined as co-founder as well. And then I kept going, you know, so we have one person doing, taking care of events, organizing now because it's a lot of work, as you know, and one designer. 
and uh, that's it for now. Which uh, one assistant, just because I kind of run everywhere. So that's a team of like ten people right now. Half of it is tech, tech and product, which as it should be. And when we have a product, obviously we'll we'll probably need some marketing and we'll need salesperson, obviously. But that's too early for now. Right, and I know you're famous for talking about how advertising, marketing, and PR suck. Yes, I, I actually avoid it, with the exception of Facebook ads. I've been very impressed by Facebook ads recently. Very, very impressed. Well, tell me what your experience has been. Well, I've been experimenting with growing. So I was telling you I really enjoy writing my newsletter, and I, I've had my email newsletter, and I've had quite a bit of success with it. In six months, 12,000 people subscribed to it. But it kind of like started slowing down a little as a growth. So I thought, okay, well, how about I experiment trying to convert some of my Facebook likes on my page into newsletter subscribers. And how do I do that? Good news with Facebook ads is you can put 10 bucks if you want to test something or 20 bucks. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. And I tested an ad, which I've been blown away by the results. They, they let you target, target quote unquote, right? But they let you reach, let's say reach, people who have watched your videos. So I do a lot of videos. I did 150 plus Facebook lives. So some of them get 50,000 people. And so they let you target people who watch more than 10 seconds of your videos, which I did. And then they have this ad format, which is a sign-up ad, where you can, in the ad, tell people, sign up to my newsletter. And I tried that. And for a week, I put a budget of about... Like a little bit more than a thousand dollars, so it's it's not big, but it's not small. It's significant, and I got almost a thousand emails. And then it doesn't matter if those emails are not active and don't open anything, of course. But I I figure that if they were watching my videos, then they would probably want my newsletter as well. And the open rate on this new segment was 40%, so very high. It's basically transforming Facebook likes into an email newsletter subscriber. And that worked really well. The cost per acquisition of your own fans, which is kind of fun somehow to think of it a bit this way. It's like $1 to $1.5. So I'm buying my own fans. And why am I doing this? <laughs> because I like to have a direct connection with them. And I think email is the best way to have a direct connection. Like it's not Facebook deciding what you should see. But I, I think you, you use email a lot, right, David? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I was one of the people who signed up for your list when you first started promoting it on Facebook. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How do you like it? I love the content. And it's interesting because it feels like it's very personal. And yet everything has some strong message, some content that you can take action on, which I, I really like. I'm curious how you define the fans that you're targeting. What is the what is the definition of your target audience for that? I don't have a targeted audience. I really don't. I just aim at sharing as much as possible what I learn. And this will gather a crowd that is already doing it of either would-be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who are learning themselves. And why I'm doing this? Well, first, I really like sharing, pretty obvious. And so email is a way to share and I have to write one this week. But it's not like there is no science. I'm trying to learn actually the email marketing, but my goal is not to convert people into buying stuff. Obviously, they buy tickets to my events, but this is not the main goal. The main goal is really to, you know, if I go to Tokyo, I know there is a few people there that subscribe and I can throw a nice dinner. And if I go to pretty much anywhere in the world, there is someone who subscribed to my newsletter. And it's cool because then I can see the local culture and I can discover entrepreneurs there. And then obviously, it's also a fantastic tool for my new 
you know, company platform leaders. But that's kind of a secondary, this is the thing I want to be doing in 10 years, 20 years, regardless of how leaders does. Keeping the newsletter going, keeping in touch with an audience, this is what you want to be doing regardless. Yeah, regardless of a platform. Look at Twitter. 10 years ago, we were all about Twitter. Today, we started this project, the Call for Speakers. Give me a number on how many people you think signed up with a Twitter login. You know, I couldn't possibly guess. 2.5%. Really? Yeah. That, that's, that's much lower than I would have expected. Yeah, me too. And obviously, 60% use Facebook. We are actually removing Twitter from our next version entirely. It's just useless. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a revolution from the man who launched Seismic. Yes, <laughs> which was a big mistake, was to rely only on Twitter. That's a learning the hard way lesson here. So here's what I'm doing. I, I don't think email is going anywhere. <laughs> so I'm basically building a direct communication with my community, which doesn't depend on a social network. That's what I'm doing. If it's Facebook, you know, in 10 years, great. We'll still use Facebook, but it's kind of hilarious that you publish your own content on Facebook. You get likes. So these are the people who found you, but mostly because your content is good. But then Facebook decides what they should see. So they don't show everything of your own content. And then they make you pay to acquire them back. So how about having a direct connection with you? That would be much better. <laughs> I think so. Absolutely. I notice you also publish your content directly on LinkedIn. Yeah, I do. I don't, I don't know how much traction I'm getting there. But yes, I, I do. I would say it's probably the second source, yeah. The way that you use media is one of the things that people follow you for. And you know, certainly the way that you picked up Facebook Live and started using that immediately because Facebook had an algorithm that was promoting things that went through Facebook Live. I think that helped as well. Yeah, there is something to be said about being early on any platform. It's good. Like the beginning of Facebook Live, there was no competition. So no one was really using Facebook Live. I mean, I had up to 8,000 people watching live at one point, which doesn't happen anymore. But it was like the very beginning. Number one got thousands as well. Live simultaneous watchers, people watching, because Zuckerberg joined one of my lives. <laughs> when Zuckerberg joins your live, it tells his network, Mark just joined Loic's live. And, and then you have all the Zuckerberg following, which is millions of people. It was a very interesting experience. You, you could think it's great. It's not so great, actually, because you get a lot of random people in there. Don't know who you are, who are like, there's a lot of trolls. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but it's a good experience. So this is why I'm also experimenting with Snapchat right now and with Instagram Stories, the competitor of Snapchat that they just launched, just to see what, what, what I get. But I would say the, right now in, in order, it's one, the Facebook Live, two, Facebook in general, and three, probably Instagram and Snapchat and then LinkedIn. And the rest doesn't really matter. And I'm trying to channel all of that into my newsletter. I'm actually planning, I think I will try a one week or even a one month where I completely turn off everything else except my newsletter. No, it seems like everything's channeling back into old, reliable email, despite all of the new media. Exactly. <laughs> I, I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned earlier. You, you brought up mindfulness, and I know that one of the things that you've been involved in for a few years is working on your own mindfulness practice. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how that's been progressing. It's been progressing very well. I try to not have a single day without meditating. I generally succeed. I actually have stats. I use an app called Zen Friend, Z-E-N Friend. It's a very simple app that tells you when it's on or off and then clock. It's a clock, basically. And it wakes you up after the time you decided. So I religiously meditate 20 minutes every morning. I used to 
do one hour, but that is too much in a business schedule. 20 minutes is, is doable, and it just does a ding at the end when you're done, uh, so it wakes you up somehow, and it keeps stats. So I can tell you the last 100 days, I missed about three days. So that gives you an idea. And that is mostly because I, I take planes and travel sometimes across the world, and then it's not easy. But anyway, to your point, yeah, it changed my life. I have a saying, I, I've been lucky enough to meet Jack Confield, who is one of the top, top, you know, meditation teachers in the U.S. He founded Spirit Rock. If you Google it, you'll see it's very, very famous, both him and with his books that I highly recommend in the school. And he told me, meditate as if your life depended on it. It creates a filter between you and anything that happens to you. That would be the first learning. It's like if, if someone yells at you in the street for some reason because they're having a bad day or gives you a finger because of anything. That happens. A lot in San Francisco, by the way, where our office is. There's a lot of crazy people around. We're in mid-market, so it's a very poor neighborhood. In the morning when I bike, I bike to work. When I bike, I have to be careful where I drive because there are a lot of needles around. Anyway, I, I will not be more graphic than that, but sometimes you get yelled at for no reason or even insulted. And, you know, instead of a response being yelling back, you just, you know, observe it. And that's, that's one of the meditation benefits. So if, if you get upset about anything, you learn to see yourself getting upset. And this was the first learning. And then generally you don't get upset. I fell. I'm a human being even though I meditate. So I, I do still get upset sometimes. But generally it creates a filter by showing you that it's bad for you to do that and it doesn't help. Like if you think about ways you got upset at something or someone, think about it a month after, generally it didn't matter at all. And it only made things worse. And here's how it teaches you that. If you sit and you meditate, you will have all kinds of things happening to your brain. So I don't know, basic needs. Let's say after 10 minutes, you really need to go to a bathroom. Well, you will learn to not do that. And because you can generally wait another 10 minutes or you need to sneeze or something is itchy somewhere. Well, you learn to not touch it and just observe it and generally it goes away. Or you have a little back pain or, you know, anything that happens to your body. Or you really want to stop meditating. That's a classic. You know, after five, ten minutes, you really want to open your eyes and because you, you need to do this, call that person. So just not doing that trains your brain in creating that filter that makes us human beings, like animals. There is no space between what they do and what they could do. <laughs> Well, we have a space between our, you know, what we do and what we could do. We always think about the future, the past, the guilt, like everything. Well, they are really in the present. So meditation brings you back in the present and puts a new like, filter around things that fall on, on your head and, and happen to you. That's the first learning, but there are so many. You know, I could talk to you for hours about, about what it does as benefits. But yes, you're, you should do it if you don't, and I highly, highly recommend it. When you got started with meditation, it sounds like you have a simple sitting practice in which you just close your eyes, close your mind, and focus on the present. Is that the nature of your practice, and is that what you came to? The way I came into a practice is, unfortunately, I divorced four years ago from a 20-year marriage, which I will not you know, get into the details of that, but here's the fact. I felt I needed a, you know, a major reboot. I went into a 10-day meditation retreat, which was silent. No eye contact, no devices, so no iPhone, no computer, no nothing. So no email, no calls for 10 days. And then meditating 10 hours a day. <laughs> 
Uh, so this feels really more like a, you know, military. <laughs> and the only luxury I had there was my pillow. I slept in a 12 people dorm and ate vegan food. Lost, I think, something like 12 or 16 pounds. And I wasn't particularly heavy when I joined <laughs> in 10 days. And all you do is when your eyes are open and you're not meditating, you watch the forest is beautiful, it's in Yosemite, it was in Yosemite, you can do that all around the world. It's called Vipassana, and it's at dhamma.org. But if you Google Vipassana, it's all around the world, it's non-profit, it's free actually. You go there and uh, it's whatever you give at the end that you want to give. It's a wonderful thing that has changed me forever, and since then I meditate every day. But there are other ways to get into meditation. The other way you can get into it, which is a very low bar compared to what I did, is an app called Headspace which is very popular and it takes you from zero to, you know, beginner meditator. And Vipassana and Dhamma is actually, they claim it to be the original method of Buddha. It's very, very pure. It's all around the world. It's pure because it's also a non-profit. And as I said, it's free. You can go for free. Anyone can go. So you end up in a group where you have entrepreneurs, but you also have philosophy teachers and you have some people who don't have a home and you have, like, it's as varied as the human species can be <laughs> very, very interesting. Extreme experience, but you don't have to go that extreme. It exists all around the world. You can do, you can do this Vipassana anywhere and you survive. It, 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 there is nothing bad. And you do your, your meditation usually in the morning. So I'm curious if you could take me through what your, what does your routine look like these days? Well, I wake up and try to immediately meditate even before like, and never touch your iPhone before that. <laughs> because then your brain starts to kick in with all kinds of different things that you should do or reply to. And then I try, if I have a time, I, I have a second routine, which is morning notes, morning pages, which is very simple. It's journaling. It's, so you take a page or two in a book, in a notepad, and you write whatever comes to your mind. You can do this before or after meditation. Highly, highly recommend book by Julia Cameron called The Artist Way, where I picked up this habit. She explains in the book why it's good for your brain, but it's like therapy. Basically, instead of talking to a therapist, you talk to yourself by writing anything that comes out. It's incredible because it will remind you things that you don't like about yourself because you write them down. They keep coming back all the time. Say you drink too much, not my case, but I'm just taking this example. It's I'm pretty sure that at one point you will start writing, I didn't like myself yesterday because I did this, I drank too much. And it will keep coming back, so it, it kind of reminds you yourself. And, and then it saves moments that are important. You could have a dream or a nightmare, you save it. Or you could have a very persistent thought. I wrote a post about this, the miracle of morning pages that you can Google. So I try to do 20 minutes of meditation, then 5 to 10 minutes, no more morning pages. That's already a good half an hour, 40 minutes. I sometimes fail. If I fail, I try to fail the morning page is not a meditation. Then, yeah, take coffee, go to the office. I didn't have an office only three months ago, so it was mostly for a moment. And now I go to my office, work with my team, and I, I struggle, like everybody does, between my to list and the incoming emails and contacts and, and everything else. But I, I try to be pretty driven on uh, where to focus my time. How do you keep up with your, with your email list? Because I'm sure that you are massively contacted by people all the time. I uh, don't know how to cope with email. I read it all. My newsletter didn't help because with 12,000 subscribers, when I send an email, oh, that's a lot of people who have my email. 
And uh, so I get a lot of email and I love getting all those emails because I'm looking for a direct contact. So, you know, let's face it, I love it. I try to reply, but it's physically not possible to reply. Even if I was, if I were uh, doing this full time, replying to my email comments on Facebook and all of the incoming flow of contacts, I could not do it. So if, I, if, if, if this was my full-time job, I could not do it. So I decided, you know, I could not do it. You have to live with that. So I replied to as many as I can. But the answer is, I, it's like a flow. I used to be very anal 10 years ago about archiving everything. And, and now it's like a stream. It's like a, my email is like a Facebook stream. I read it. If I miss something, you know what? It's gone forever. What I've learned is that if it's important, it finds you again. To answer your question, I, I spend a lot of time with great people. And that's probably why I work, really. Because I've had a, I have a huge luxury, which is having started six startups, sold a few of them, invested. I, I made enough money that you know, I cannot go crazy, which I'm really happy about. Because I have a lot of friends who are rich enough that some of them go a little crazy. And, and so, so I'm actually happy that I am wealthy but not too rich <laughs> I, I cannot go crazy but I could stop working if I wanted to with a simple life I work because it, it's an occasion or an excuse to spend time with amazing people so in my time every day I generally have a lunch I have a coffee I, or many I have dinners yesterday I had a dinner my day is packed with amazing people it's almost like I started this new business leaders with that in mind, because it's, it's one of the goals of leaders is obviously to find amazing people. So I have included it in my business life because I think the best way to do your job as, uh, to do your job with pleasure is to actually love it. And so I've kind of designed my company around my need to spend time with great people. And, uh, and that's why I love, if you told me, no, 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 go kitesurfing, which is one of my passions for two months. I would say, no, 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 no. I would prefer kitesurf two or three times a week, which is a lot already, but keep doing what I love in my job. So I try to pack my day with that. But then I, you'll see me disappear. My employees know that. They, sometimes I disappear at 3 or 4 p.m. and they'll find me paragliding uh, for two hours. <laughs> I don't hide it. I put it on Facebook Live, actually, as well, because San Francisco is so beautiful. You can be in 20 minutes. I can be from my office to the ocean, kitesurfing under the Golden Gate Bridge, surrounded by dolphins and sometimes whales. The sharks you don't see much, but they're here. Or I can be in 20 minutes in Pacifica on the cliff there. We call it Muscle Rock. It's uh, amazing. Like you're just flying like a bird and you see whales and dolphins also, but from above this time. And those are my two passions. And I, I do that a lot, but it, it takes two or three hours. So I, I just go and come back. And my employees know that. It's nice to be in a situation where, where you've, you've really designed a lifestyle for yourself that does allow you the freedom to pursue your passions like that. It does, yeah, yeah. It goes even to the funding of leaders, which we are funded by uh, only business angels, <laughs> which also is, is the ultimate luxury. We have 50 business angels that invested in leaders, and the freedom it provides is incredible because I don't have uh, one investor, VC, that tells me, no, you're doing this wrong, and we disagree with this. And so I only have friends around me, but it's a huge freedom. They just trust me. Is this the first company that you've done that's fully angel funded? Yes, it's the first one, and it's totally angel funded. And I'm actually intending to stay this way. We'll see. But 
I have nothing against VCs. I'm myself an LP, a limited partner at some of the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, actually six of them, so a lot of them. And I highly value their work, but they tend to sometimes be a little too controlling and I really like my freedom. So that's, that's what I chose to do so far. I think that's a strong message for us, for some people who, who maybe at a different point in their careers, I think a lot of people see the VC as the thing that they're targeting, the thing that they're moving toward. And I think you've moved beyond that. We'll see, you know, I might end up being, I hope Leaders is so successful that when we have VCs want to, you know, invest in it and there is enough growth that I actually decide, you know, okay, now let's put $10 million inside this thing to accelerate and make it big. But it's honestly unlikely. The way I'm building it is more uh, what uh, VCs call a lifestyle business, which is what I love. It doesn't have to be big. It, it really doesn't. Uh, if you know of a book called Rework, R-E-W-O-R-K, Rework, really good book that says you don't have to be big. You know, just, you know, just do what you love, do it well, make your customers happy and your partners happy. That's, that's the way I'm working right now. I, I don't care about a billion dollar company at all. That's interesting. And you mentioned that you look back in like Seismic, for example, you see that as kind of a failure in your career? Yeah, Seismic is a failure for sure, but it's a failure that taught me so much that it's probably not a failure in general, but it's a failure as a business, yes. We built something in someone else's gardens, so we did two mistakes. The, the first mistake was to be way ahead of our time, so we created a video conversation service that was uh, 10 years ago before the iPhone, before Android. It has something to do with Snapchat today, to be honest. When I see the way people communicate and use Snapchat, I'm like, huh, this is familiar. <laughs> because we were really using the front you know, camera, but of your Mac, because there was no phone and we were making it really easy to post videos. But that was too early. That was mistake number one, so it did not take off. Too early doesn't work. That mistake number one. Now I'm trying to do something that people want right now. And it's the case so far. And then uh, for event organizers. And then the second mistake was when I did a pivot around the Twitter ecosystem because I was in love with Twitter at the time and uh, thought it would be huge. And we pivoted into a Twitter-only app. And we were very successful at it until the founders or two of the three founders of Twitter told me, hey, uh, we really like what you're doing, Lloyd, but you, should, you have to stop because we won't let apps basically do what you do, which was basically giving a, another Twitter experience by showing the whole content, letting you reply. We were the most popular Android app on Twitter before Twitter had even an Android app and a very popular iPhone app. So I pivoted into that and suddenly Twitter told me, well, you can do it. So I called my investors and said, hey, uh, here's what's happening. I have to pivot again. And so my head was spinning and I've really tried to succeed with it and ended up selling to Hootsuite for not much. So my, I think most of my investors made their money back, which is incredible. Or if not, if they held the stock because we sold to Hootsuite, so they got Hootsuite stock and Hootsuite is doing very well. They, they got something out of it, which uh, could be uh, you know, up to or a little more than their investment, but uh, something. I didn't make anything. <laughs> And nor did my team, unfortunately, because that's what happens when you have preferences in your equity, uh, your investors get it first. And you know what? That's fine. That's fair. That's the rule. But when you look back at that, it's a failure that taught you a lot of things. Well, failure, first off, failure is part of the life of an entrepreneur. So yes, it's a failure. I would say I fail every single day. I try to fail in a less dramatic way. 
is, is the way you can do it. It's like if you're an entrepreneur and you, you, you fear failure or you think you can avoid failure, it's, 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 it does not exist. I fail all the time. Every single day I felt something. But the question is to move fast enough and learn from your mistakes. And that's, that's how you do it. Everybody's you know, failing. Look, did you see what happened today? Today, Elon Musk has blown a rocket that has caused the destruction of one of uh, Facebook Zuckerberg's satellites to connect Africa to the internet. Zuck has just posted, I'm, I'm really embarrassed that basically at Elon for doing that. And so someone screwed up somewhere, but I think space is probably, you know, one of the spaces where uh, literally you can screw up a lot because it's all new and difficult. And then uh, if you do, well, it, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So what I screwed up is really nothing to compare to that. But, I, you know, I'm not blaming Elon. He's trying amazing things. He has rockets that take off and land by themselves. Like, who else does that? Nobody. So... I guess you, you don't have the opportunity for spectacular successes unless you're willing to risk spectacular failures. Yeah, screwing up is fine. It's just part of it. Look, look around, look around. Like everybody screws up. Apple launches products that never work. Google launches Google Glass. It doesn't work. You know, it's, it's okay. Uh, Apple launched the Newton and 10 years after or 20 years after they launched the iPhone. And they launched Apple Watch, and I think, you know, honestly, it's, it's a disaster. I would be curious to see the numbers, but all of my friends who bought an Apple Watch don't wear it today anymore. Uh, they launched Siri. Do you know anyone else uh, using really Siri for real? I don't. All the buzz about, you know, assistance and AI, and it's same with Bitcoin and blockchain. Like, I keep, like, talking with entrepreneurs who are, like, all about it. And I, I have yet to find someone really using Bitcoin for something... That is that gets traction and volume, but it's okay. Maybe maybe it's going to take off in ten years. It doesn't matter. So the question is uh, not about whether you will screw up or not. Is is what you will do out of it. So for example, my learning is never built on someone else's garden anymore entirely. So leaders is independent and it doesn't depend on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Twitter or anything. It will just be its own thing. And it's the opportunity, I think, for the people who are speakers inside of the leaders platform to manage their own platform within leaders as well, right? I hope so, yes. We will measure speaking minutes that we provide to our speakers. We will measure, of course, dollars we provide to them as speaking opportunities, but not only because as a speaker, if you're offered to speak at TED, they won't pay you anything, but it's going to be probably the chance of your career to exist in the world and promote yourself, so you should take that. You know, you have to do both of it and we'll, we'll help. We'll help you choose, you know, to go to a paid speaking gig at uh, a large corporation that may be totally boring for you, but you'll get money or to go to speak at South by Southwest, you won't get any money. In fact, you will even pay to go there, but it will be, it might make your service take off like it did for Twitter, which launched there at South by Southwest, for example. Right. And honestly, approaching you to be on my podcast was taking advice from you, where you said, if you can reach out to somebody and offer to help them in some way, that's the best way to start a communication with them. Oh, thank you for saying that. Sure. Absolutely. That's the way I try to do things as well, which is to, how can I help is always a good approach, even for sharing online. If you share something, you write a post, and you help someone, they'll remember it. How can my listeners find out about you and help you? So, <laughs> thank you for asking. They can go to leaders, lead.rs. Right now, there is very little. They can subscribe to my newsletter, as you understood that that's important for me, and I take it very seriously. I, 
I don't spam, I don't give your email address to anyone, you can unsubscribe at any moment. I write it with uh, love every week <laughs> and it's just me. So they can do that and then, you know, how they can help, I don't know, you never know that, but they can definitely register as a speaker very soon, we will do that. And if they organize events, they can try our product very soon as well for Call for Speakers, which is coming. But otherwise, you know, no real help needed. It's more like, well, new connections, new friends. That's how we can help. Fantastic. Well, be sure to send me the links to the product as it launches so that I'll be able to update your show notes with those details. And thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your information with us. No, thank you for um, having me. It's been fun. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.